This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and I am here with David Rutledge, host of the Philosopher's Zone podcast. Thank you, David, for joining me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so uh, first you might notice that my voice, I've, I've been very sick. And oh, like, really? I oh, woke up with, with like the most hellacious uh, sinus infection. So if I sound miserable, it's because I am. Uh, okay. So <laughs> apologize, apologies to the Julie audience noted. for that. Um, but it's not COVID. It is not COVID. No, I, yeah. I tested myself multiple times and it is not COVID. Um, also, we're doing this on Halloween. You're in Australia. Do uh, do So I saw this tweet on... Uh, I, I saw this, this photo on Twitter and I wanted to get your opinion on whether it is an accurate description of Halloween in Australia. It looks like a... It's a photograph of a piece of paper pinned to someone's door and it says... This is Australia, not America. Fuck off with your Halloween shit, you little cunts. Is that <laughs> the general attitude towards Halloween? <laughs> that was our front door, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, got it. You, so you're the one you, you, Australian who, who enjoys Halloween. Oh, there, there are many of us. You, you do get that attitude. That there is a big sort of... Halloween's really sort of blown up in the last maybe 10, 15 years. It ne- never used to be a big thing, but it has kind of turned up. It, it has turned into much more of a thing. And, and of course, all the, all the stores get into it and there's lots of selling of halloween shit starts around you know late august and people don't like it um but you know kids love it and we had kids running around everywhere last night and just sort of having fun and we're in the part of uh, southeast queensland where i live is semi-rural and we have a big scarecrow festival in october leading up to halloween so people make these scarecrows and stick them out the fronts of their houses and there's a competition about that and that's fine but yes, a lot of people really hate it. <laughs> anyway, well, we wish all of you happy Halloween from the past because this will probably come out in like two or three weeks. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we carry on with the conversation, as always, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. I could not do the show without them. This week's episode is brought to you by Vicky, Andy, Pamela, Godfrey, and Casey Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. And for anyone listening to this who wants to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. You get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with Timothy McPherson, former Salvation Army officer. And we talk about theology, philosophy, religion, all kinds of different stuff. So if that interests you, then please do go just give $1 a month. I am a very cheap bitch. You can buy me for $1. <laughs> All right. Also, there are other ways to support my work. Please subscribe to my newsletter at stephenbradfordlong.com. You get interesting content there every single week. I just wrote an article about J.K. Rowling and resilient reading and the practice of reading stuff that we find distasteful or problematic and cultivating the practice of resilience in in reading challenging stuff. Uh, I just wrote an essay on the fourth tenet of the Satanic Temple. So if any of that stuff interests you, please subscribe to my newsletter. Also, join my Discord server. It is a fantastic little community over there. There's constantly a really fun conversation going on. So do please check them out. There's a link in the show notes for all of this. All right. 
now with all of that annoying, boring stuff out of the way, David Rutledge, um, tell us some about the Philosopher's Zone and and your work and what you do. You just you, I was just recently on the Philosopher's Zone a few weeks ago, and it was lovely. So tell tell my audience about what that show is. Oh, goody. I get to plug my show. Um, okay. Well, it's it's a weekly uh, philosophy podcast and radio program. It, it, it comes out through ABC Radio National, which is kind of like the Australian equivalent of NPR, although we are federally funded, which is nice. And um, it's each, pro, each episode is a half-hour chat about philosophy, just very simply put. Um, I, I usually interview academic philosophers, professional philosophers, um, not because I necessarily want to, but because that's that's pretty much where the philosophy gets done. Mm-hmm. Um, although I love having people like you on the program because we, we can have a philosophical conversation which isn't which, which doesn't come out of that sort of academic. I was background. about to say I am very much not academic. <laughs> <laughs> you did a great job. It was a very popular uh, episode. I'm too. so glad. But um, yeah, you know, and my own, I mean, I, I love doing the program. It's I'm, I'm lucky enough to sort of have it all to myself. I don't have a producer. I don't have any kind of, I mean, I, I, because I'm at the ABC, I have sort of 17 layers of management above me. I have many, many bosses, but none of them really interfere in what I'm doing at all. Uh, I just get the program out on deadline. Everybody's happy. So it's a really nice gig at the moment because I'm just, it, it's my little sort of playpen uh, where I can just sort of explore ideas and, and talk to interesting people about interesting stuff. I do suffer from... Uh, imposter syndrome because <laughs> my who does my, it? Uh, all of yeah. yeah absolutely all of us do. yeah yeah I, I i think it's i think it's rampant my, my academic background is sort of philosophy adjacent um i didn't i, I did literature as an undergrad and then uh, as a phd student i studied the work of one philosopher so my Which philosophical one? training actually uh, Jacques Derrida, okay. the uh, French um, postmodernist, is, is mm-hmm. sort of what he tends to be called. We, we can sort of talk about him a little bit, but you know, my but his take on philosophy and, and therefore my philosophical training sort of comes via a, a critique of philosophy, especially analytic philosophy, which is that traditional style of philosophy that's you, you know you, it's it's all about clarity in argument and the loose the use of um, rigorous logic, formal logic. So very very concerned with getting to the essence of things, um, which I think is what people think about when they hear the word philosophy. It's sort of questions like, what's the nature of being? What's the nature of good and evil? What is language? What moral or ethical principles can we come up with that are sort of fixed for all time? And the big enemy of all that, that sort of analytic philosophical pro- approach, is uh, ambiguity and contradiction. We have to get rid of that. And so I, I entered the world of philosophy via a critique of all of that. Um, so it started with Derrida, but then I, from, I got into Nietzsche and feminist philosophy and various thinkers who get lumped in that, that sort of postmodernism basket. And their critique of the European Enlightenment philosophical tradition is, is one that I still broadly agree with. I mean, I, I like ambiguity. You know, I, I like my philosophy to, to be more like literature than, than like science or mathematics. Um, so that, that's that's my imposter syndrome. It, it, I feel as though, as, as the host of a, a generalist <laughs> philosophy program, I, I should be more sympathetic to the entire philosophical tradition. But, but what I try to do on the program, and this is maybe you know what the program is is about, is is sort of making philosophy matter uh, to people who might not think that they're interested in philosophy. So 
I'm delighted to talk about Immanuel Kant or Bertrand Russell or any of the big names in analytic philosophy. And, and, you know, I love the opportunity of having to learn about these figures, which I usually do. I mean, a lot of these conversations I'm sort of researching from the ground up. Um, but the big question, you know, for every episode of The Philosopher's Zone is, is why should somebody who has never been interested in philosophy, never heard of Immanuel Kant or Bertrand Russell or any of these people, why should they be interested in this conversation? Why is it relevant right now? And that's, that's what the program, that, that's what I like to think the program is about, sort of philosophy for the, um, for, the, for the unconvinced, if you like. Yeah, for the masses. No, that's brilliant. Mm. And it, so this conversation will be a fantastic counterpoint to my conversation with Helen Pluckrose. Um, uh-huh. I don't know if you listened to that episode. Did you? Did you listen? I to, did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw. I, I haunt Helen Pluckrose. I sort of follow her around the internet, and she, she's kind of my intellectual enemy. But I, <laughs> I you, know, you, you got to know your enemy, right? Absolutely. Well, and she's a lovely woman, and and she's yeah, really yeah, smart. Yeah. She's a lovely person, and you know, I'm still making up my mind about what I think about her. But everyone can go listen to that. The episode is called Cynical mm. Theories uh, with Helen Pluckrose. There's a reason why I interviewed Helen and not her co-author James Lindsay because James Lindsay is a complete dipshit monstrosity now yes. um, oh my god but, the poor guy I just feel sorry for yeah, him I, no, I there's, think there's, there's something really wrong there's something very very wrong anyway we don't need to go down the uh, James Lindsay Helen Pluckrose mm-hmm. rabbit hole um, but yeah no good so I'm I'm glad to hear that you will be kind of a, a counterweight to <laughs> to Helen Pluckrose. Maybe we won't necessarily get into postmodernism in this sure. episode. But you mentioned in our conversation, one thing that I did want to ask you, you mentioned in our conversation on the Philosopher's Zone that you started out evangelical and that you were raised evangelical. So what were you just kind of non-denominational evangelical or were you in a particular tradition? Christian tradition. Tell us some about that background. Sure. Yeah. Well, I I was born in in Sydney, in uh, the city of Sydney in Australia, and our church was an Anglican church. So I was a Sydney Anglican, which might not mean anything to anybody outside the Anglican church, but within the Anglican church, Sydney Anglicanism is a very particular um, sort of breed, because as you'll know, Anglicanism is a a very broad church and you have gay and lesbian Anglican ministers and you have women Anglican ministers and you have that sort of progressive Anglican minister who will say that, oh, I don't, you know, I don't necessarily believe in the resurrection, this kind of thing. And then you have the terrifying uh, African diocese that that have plants in um, America, in, in the United States, mm-hmm. in the UK, and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So it's it's a very well, it's, it's a very bizarre. I mean, it's it's a really interesting communion. It's the mm-hmm. Anglican communion is a fascinating religious phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the the super conservative uh, African diocese because Sydney the, the Sydney Anglicans have just for as long as I've been alive, I think have been ultra ultra conservative. I don't really know why that's the case, why it's the Sydney diocese, but it has always been like that. And they're still very upset about homosexuality, very upset about the ordination of women. Um, so much so that they have actually joined a, a sort of a breakaway Anglican communion known as GAFCON, which is the global Anglican something that, something something. That sounds like a sci-fi federation yeah, in space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, GAFCON. <laughs> <laughs> and uh well it, it, it almost is because also, members of GAFCON are those ultra-conservative uh, Anglican dioceses, um, South America as well. So, Sydney Anglic- the Sydney Anglican Diocese has sort of jumped in with them, mm. um, which gives you a, a sense of you know how how full on they are. But for me, growing up, I mean, I just I just knew I was a 
I was an Anglican Christian. You know, it didn't really, it didn't sort of mean anything to me uh, as a as a kid. But um, by way of some background, I mean this this might sort of clue your listeners into the flavour of uh, of my Christian upbringing. My parents were converted at a, a Billy Graham crusade in the 1950s. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Billy Graham would would sort of stage. Did they these put their hand? Rallies. Were they were they at a rally or was it via television? Where they put their hand on the television and no, accepted Jesus? Because I I have I know a lot of older <laughs> right. people. I know a lot of elderly people who are like I accepted Jesus Christ into my heart watching a Billy Graham crusade, and mm-hmm. I put my hand on the television screen and accepted him into my heart, and so oh, on. Amazing. Yeah, whole yeah. whole generation of people. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, had had their conversion experience that way. Well, that was his thing, wasn't it? He was the first, I believe, he was the first sort of mass media evangelist. That was kind of his genius. Um, yeah, I mean, my parents didn't didn't touch the TV. They went to the rally, um, mm. and the deal was, you know, Billy does his thing, and then at the end of it, he he invites anybody who wants to receive Jesus into their heart down to the front to the stage. And so my mum and dad went down, and. Billy Graham would have all his sort of flunkies lined up and there would be laying on of hands and various things, but the flunkies would also take your name and address and contact details. And then they would follow up. I'm not sure how it worked, but you you would be connected to a Billy Graham-approved church in your local area um, by way of follow-up. So that's what um, mum and dad did. And this was all, you know, this was a couple of years before I was born. But so I, I, I was born into this kind of situation and our local church was really interesting because... The minister and his wife were from England, and the wife was involved in the Festival of Light, which was, I think that was sort of really just a sort of a UK phenomenon with a bit of an Australian wing to it. But it was um, a group of Christian activists who were set against what used to be called the permissive society in the late 60s and early 70s, and they were particularly hung up about pornography and sexually explicit material. And... um, our minister's wife was was involved in this kind of campaign, this anti-porn campaign. And when um, shipments of porn, because it's all pre-internet, of course, would come into Australia, people would have to to look at all the porn, you know, videos or magazines or whatever it was, and decide how they were going to classify it. If it was going to be over eighteen only, or if it was really explicit, it would be refused classification and burnt or sent back to wherever it came from. And um, so, our minister's wife, part of her job was to periodically go down to customs house and and, and watch it, all this it rummage through the porn <laughs> rummage through the porn watch the videos and so you know we we i, I was sort of gr- i grew up in this in this this atmosphere of this idea that the forces of filth and moral degradation were were always present you know always sort of threatening to take over and uh, it was a very sort of militant militant and and defensive uh, position that our that our church took and everybody in it and my parents were very, very worried about two things. They were worried about drugs and pop culture, which coincidentally turned out to be the two things that my siblings and I would go on to enthusiastically explore as we got older. Of course. And, and <laughs> pop culture in particular was associated with Satan, and our minister was always giving endless sermons from the pulpit about you know, that pop, was, pop culture was the portal via which Satan got his hooks into young minds. And... Uh, 
I, I got some money for my birthday at one point and I wanted to buy a record. I wanted to buy an Alice Cooper album because I was, I, was, I was kind of into Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. And mum and dad smelt a rat. I don't know how they sort of twigged to the idea that this Alice Cooper character was a bit sus, but mum announced that she was going to come to the record store with me and uh, listen to some of this record before I could bring it home. And so we marched up to the record store and asked for the record and mum sort of turned it over and had a look at the back of the jacket and said, I want to listen to this song, this one called I Love the Dead. And uh, so the, the record store guy puts it on and it's this song. It's just Alice singing about how he fucks dead bodies and it's really great and very kind of sensual. And, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't bring that record home um, in the end. And what followed was a, a sort of a period in our family of mum and dad being sort of extra vigilant about, um, about anything that we brought into the house that wasn't, you know, stamped officially Christian. So... You know, all of that was that, – that was kind of the flavour of my upbringing um, when I was a kid. And, and, and mum and dad were not – you know, I, I should say my parents were actually really cool. They, they picked their battles. They understood that I and my brother and sister were autonomous beings that would go on to form our own decisions about the world. They, they were actually really kind of great, but there were certain non-negotiable things that, that had to do with um, – with this sense that uh, that we were that we were under threat, you know, and uh, pop culture was one of them. We had to go to church. We had to go to Sunday school. Uh, when we were older, we had to go to youth fellowship. Those were sort of the non-negotiable parts of our upbringing. So, yeah, that, that's so. I, I, that, I don't know. I've just sort of picked some random anecdotes there, but it maybe gives you the uh, the flavor of a, a, a suburban Sydney Anglican <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> I think that a lot of my listeners will probably relate to that. So, how did that change? And so, I, I mean, you eventually left the faith and did philosophy play a role in that did reading mm. derrida <laughs> kind of fuck up your faith <laughs> or something um but yeah what what's that story of leaving your faith yeah it, it's it's hard to remember a timeline you know because it because it really wasn't a, a a traumatic event there was no event um mm. as such there was no crisis i mean i i called myself a christian through high school also at university as an undergrad but it was a very private thing, you know. I was I was a classic Protestant. It was just me and God, just having our little thing, you know. And nobody else necessarily involved. Um, none of my friends were Christian. None of my girlfriends were Christian. It, it just sort of didn't matter. Um, I, I I I had that sex that, that sense of connection, which was very real, you know. I, I I felt what I took to be the presence of God, and it was something that I would lean on occasionally, you know, if I was sort of depressed or upset about something. Prayer felt like something genuine, but there were a lot of things about being a Christian that I wasn't into or or that I was sort of troubled by. I didn't know any other Christians that I liked. I mean, that was was one thing. I, I, I wasn't plugged into any sort of Christian community. It was just my family. But there were a few things about Christian teaching that had always bothered me. And this was before I sort of read any philosophy. This was just kind of thinking about things or, or even or even my emotional responses to things. Like I, I, was, I was right on board with the idea of a, a loving God. That, that made perfect sense to me, that, that God loved me and, and that I was on my way to heaven. But the notion of hell, it just always seemed kind of petty. You know, the, the, the idea that the creator of the entire universe needed followers. <laughs> you know, he would sort of condemn you to in- eternal torture if you weren't officially on the team. To eternal cosmic gas chambers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this loving God. <laughs> because you don't love and, him enough. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I don't know if I could have articulated it when I was young, but it just felt, I just kind of felt like, yeah, no, I don't think I believe that. We, we watched this movie once. They uh, brought a, a, a projector into Youth Fellowship one night and um, we watched this movie. It was called A Thief in the Night. Uh, yes, I love that movie. You know that one? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw it out on YouTube the other day and ha- had another look at it. It's so great. Just the... The, the the cheapness of the production and the and the terribleness of it's the wonderful. acting. It's wonderful. Know, it's like John Waters doing a <laughs> Christian propaganda movie. It's so great. But you know, for any listeners who don't know it, I mean, it's it's this it's this this story about a woman who wakes up and her husband is gone and she's sort of wandering around in a nightdress, going, "Jim, Jim, where are you?" And and she realizes that the rapture has happened and she had her chance. She could have she could have got on board, but she didn't. She chose not to be saved. I I okay. I have to interrupt. <laughs> because you know that that do i want to interrupt yes i'm delirious yeah go ahead i'm delirious <laughs> and sick right now so this will be a bit more of a loose chill episode than normal um sure. so my grandfather recently passed away it's fine mm-hmm. i'm fine he was 99 sometimes death isn't sad wow. i wow. i <laughs> i know that sounds callous but he really lived the most extraordinary life died of natural causes in his sleep it was you know, you couldn't ask for a better death. However, I went to the funeral and the pastor was like, we are here to celebrate so-and-so long. I won't say his first name because I'm not trying to dox any of my family. We are here to celebrate, you know, Mr. Long. He has lived an extraordinary life. We're here to celebrate his legacy. And if you don't accept Jesus Christ, you will fucking die forever. <laughs> and we are here to celebrate his extraordinary legacy that he has left behind of love and compassion. And if you die without having accepted Jesus Christ, you are not ready. And it was just like turning on a dime, going between Uh. going. It was like it was like split personality behind the pulpit where one moment it was like warm and commemorative and lovely. And then just in a split second, the altar would re- would appear <laughs> and would like preach hellfire and brimstone, and then it would switch back. It was it was hilarious. Yeah, just anyway, what, just what you want to hear, your grandfather. Just exa- exactly. I mean, I thought oh, it was hilarious, but that's yeah, because yeah. I'm a bad person. Other uh-huh. members, other members of the family were not thrilled, but I thought it was wonderful. Anyway, yeah. no, it was very weird to like step back into that headspace of mm. oh this is very real for people like the mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't theoretical this isn't a metaphor this is something that people actually really believe mm. and mm-hmm. it's i know that but it's really startling whenever i step into a social environment where that is the case and i am reminded all over again <laughs> yeah yeah and it's yeah it's an interesting experience yeah well i i just thought all that stuff was really hokey um it is i i it didn't it just didn't sort of stick with me and you know you mentioned your grandfather i mean my my grandmother my my father's grandmother died in kind of early i think she she died in her 70s and she was she was a, a a good woman. She was just a wonderful woman, she, and we were very close. And, and she was one of the one of the sort of best people I knew, just in terms of sort of fundamental human decency. But she was a a very outspoken atheist, and 
when she died, I remember thinking, is she in hell? Right. <laughs> like, has Nan, has Nan gone to hell? Surely not. <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't ask my parents. I thought that was a bit too close to the bone. You know, Dad, do you think, do you think your mum's in hell? <laughs> but I, and, and I knew the literalist answer to that question. I knew if I went to anybody in our church, they would say, well, yes, unfortunately, yes, she is. Um, but I, I had a book that was written for the sort of the thoughtful young Christian, and it was about, you know, sort of contemporary questions like sex and drugs. And, and there was a, a, do you a remember chapter the, on... Do you remember the name of it? I can't remember. I wish I could. It, it was very, um, it was very groovy. It had sort of drawings, illustrations <laughs> all the way through it of, yes. of, of people doing, yeah, you know, young people like me doing stuff, and they were all in kind of sideburns and flares and shirts of, with huge collars and so stuff. So was this I in really the seventies? This would have been the late seventies. Yeah. Late seventies. Okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, this book, which was very sort of hip to the concerns of the young Christian, uh, you know, took on this question of what about all the non-Christians who are good people? Are they all going to hell? And their answer to that was, well, God's kind of mysterious. Um, it just sort of took you know, the, the biggest <laughs> sort of cop out, which, well, we don't, you know, the Bible says that. Maybe it's true. But ultimately, they, 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 the advice was to just look after yourself. Just look out for the state of your own soul and don't worry about your grandmother or, or the, nice, the nice Buddhist or Hindu person up the road. And I just sort of thought... No, that's, that's, I'm just, the, the, the whole sort of, there was a sense of an intellectual edifice collapsing. I remember when I read that, I just sort of thought, this is bullshit. And, you know, how much of, how much of the rest is bullshit as well? And it wasn't a real sort of crisis moment, but I do remember thinking, you know what, I don't know. And I, I, I guess, you know, so when I say I don't remember a, a crisis or a, a process of losing faith, I do wonder when I think about it now, if it was, if maybe I had never sort of believed it in any really deep sense, it was more that I had just taken it all for granted. You know, I grew up in this environment where certain things were handed to me as true, and you don't even consider they might not be true. It's just sort of the way that the world is. And I was a, I was a happy kid. You know, I felt sort of secure in my loving family, and so the idea of a loving God who was sort of another really nice dad in 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 addition to the nice dad that I already had. That just made perfect sense, you know. So I think in, in some ways my faith was a, a projection of a kind of congenital optimism. And that optimism, that optimism grounded my faith rather than the other way around, you know. So it was very easy for the faith to just sort of – I wrote a piece about this a, a, a few years ago for the ABC website. And I talked about how my dad gave me a watch um, that he he had bought as a young man living in New York. It was a really nice watch. I really loved it. And one day I went to check the time and my watch was gone. It had just sort of slipped off my wrist. And I, and I was really upset about that because I loved the watch. But losing faith was a bit like that. It was like I, I sort of went to I went to look and, oh, shit, it's not there anymore. Um, but, you know, unlike the watch, I didn't I didn't care too much. That's so fascinating to me because my story of loss of faith was really like having a terminal illness and the long process of accepting it. And it was just this brutal process. And I think it started in college, maybe maybe around 2010. And then it took seven years until 2017 for, for me to really accept it and come to terms with it 
and go through the grieving process and letting go of my faith little by little. And each inch was a battle. I mean, each inch of my faith was this long process of, you know, grief and negotiation. And I mean, it was just harrowing. (laughs) It was Mm. awful. And I think a lot of that has to do with my upbringing as well, where I, I grew up. I mean, it sounds like you did too, though, where, you know, just grew up with, with people in your life who had, whose faith was such a force of nature. Mm -hmm. You know, like my, my parents, their faith is a fucking force of nature and it kind of draws everyone around them into it. I mean, it is, it's, it's incredible. I mean, they, they, the, their charisma is extraordinary. Yeah. And growing up with that and just being a 100% true believer and that slowly decaying and it's like each step of that process just being a fight until finally in 2017, I, I was able to let it, I was able to let it go, but it, it came with tremendous, it came at a tremendous cost. And so I'm always so fascinated by stories of deconversion or loss of faith because they're so different. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. get like what you just described can't get more different <laughs> from from what I experienced, and that's super interesting to me. So, as what, what can, can I yes. can I just ask what, what what's the deal with your parents now? Have they have they accepted where you've landed? So I try not to talk about my parents. I, that's a great question. Mm. I try not to talk about my family on the show too much because they sure. they didn't volunteer to be talked about. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say that I feel like we actually have a really good relationship now. Mm-hmm. And it's like I have accepted that they are I have accepted that they are who they are and they have more or less accepted where I am. We both think that we're very wrong, but we try to meet in the middle. And mm-hmm. yeah. and you know, we genuinely love each other and so I will I will give them books. They'll read them, they'll tell me what they think. They give me books, I read them, I give them my honest opinion and we kind of reason together and work towards the middle. And it is it is actually a the past year, 2 years have been surprisingly lovely with my mm-hmm. parents. Um, and it has not always been that way. So that is what I, that is what I will say about my family is that's where it is now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's surprisingly pleasant and, but I really had to, I really had to get over the hurdle of choosing to not care what they believed. I have to Mm. very deliberately push myself into that position of just being like, and actually, because I live in the American South, I have to do this in general, where, yeah, you know, yeah, basically yeah. My, my attitude is, unless you're trying to kill me <laughs> or physically hurt me or tangibly limit my freedoms in some meaningful way, unless you're do, trying to do those three things, I don't care. What I don't care mm-hmm. if you think I'm going to hell. I don't care if you think I'm disgusting, revolting. I will... Weak, I will choose to not feel threatened yeah. by your presence. And that's a choice that I've had to make just as a matter of survival because I live out here in the holler in Appalachia. Mm. There are a lot of people, it's getting better here, actually. I, I feel like the attitudes here regarding gay people have really shifted. But still, so I, I had to really deliberately make that choice when it came to my parents and and change my expectations of what the relationship would be like. And when I shifted those expectations, it's actually been quite lovely. 
(laughs) So that I I won't say much more about my parents, but that is where we are at right now. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it it was easy with my parents because they um, they themselves left the faith, which was sort of oh interesting more of a more of a shock to me than my own exit (laughs) from the faith. You know, I was I was living overseas. I I lived in um, Japan. I was in Tokyo for a couple of years, and I came home at one point for a quick visit. And mum sort of dropped this bombshell. Oh, by the way, we're, we're, we're done with all that. You know? <laughs> um, and, she, you know, for her, it was a little bit like what you've described where she did sort of have this grieving process for this thing that had, had mm. been so important to her and she didn't have it anymore and she didn't sort of want it, but she missed it. You know, she sort of missed that thing in her life. There's, there are times um, when I still miss it. I mean, I yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and like I will miss the liturgy. I was... I'll mm-hmm. find myself pining for, you know, Episcopalian liturgy or, or whatever. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> go on. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, just that, you know, um, I, I think, you know, for dad, he, he was just a bit, he was sort of angry. He felt like he'd been lied to. And their whole, I mean, I, I won't go into the whole story because you know, it's, it's not my story to tell, but their their exit from the faith involved some really shabby treatment that they had at a new church that they'd started going to, which was ultra, ultra hardcore Sydney Anglican. And even my mum and dad were not, you know, doctrinally pure enough for this church and they were mm. treated very badly and, and their exit from that church was very swiftly followed by a, a total, <laughs> the whole house of cards collapsed and uh, they're proud atheists these days. Hmm. So despite all of this, I think that there are a lot of whatever variation of godlessness you describe yourself as, agnostic slash non-theist slash atheist slash anti-theist, whatever variation thereof, Hmm. a lot of people in this position kind of just lose interest altogether in religion. But that doesn't seem to be the case with you. You know, you mentioned in Hmm. our conversation on the Philosopher's Zone that you're still really fascinated by religion. What, what is that fascination that you have? What are, what's the thing that keeps drawing you to the topic of religion? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you don't stray far from your roots. I mean, I think some of it is, is just as simple as that, even while I am, I don't like to say atheist. I don't, I don't really like calling myself an atheist, but I suppose I am. I call myself a non-theist, and when people non-theist, ask when people ask me what yeah. that means, I say it means I'm an atheist, but I'm not an asshole about it. Uh-huh, yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to adopt that. Yeah, I like that. that that's exactly it. You know that yes. that sort of that sort of grim, humorless certainty that so many atheists have that that's just this sort of mirror image of the, all the worst aspects of evangelical Christianity. So yeah, you know I. I but I, I still find, I mean, I'm comfortable around religion and religious people and religious conversations, and I still find the the intellectual traditions of Christianity and Judaism really, really, really interesting. And, you know, there are certain religious narratives that I really love. And one of them is, uh, I don't know if you know René Girard, the mm-hmm. French anthropologist uh, who died not so long ago. I mean, his... His take on on violence and what's happening in the world where, you know, he, he sort of looks at archaic religions and he the, the way that they used to use violence as a way of channeling the destructive energy of a community. Mm. So you'd have sort of, you'd have this buildup of violent energy and then they, you know, they would, they would have human sacrifice or ritual scapegoating would take place and that acted as a kind of release valve for all the violent energies. But what Christianity did, according to Girard, was that it it sort of shifted the focus onto the victim. You know, Jesus dies 
as the scapegoat for all of humanity. So we don't do human sacrifices anymore. We don't do those kinds of rituals anymore. And instead, we focus our concern on the innocent victim. And so we have human rights and this sense that killing the innocent is a moral outrage. And René Girard thinks that that is all fine. You know, he, he doesn't want to bring back human sacrifice, but the result he sees is, is that we no longer have that channel that we used to have for communal violence, So, which means that all our violent impulses are getting all sort of pent up and twisted and they break out in all sorts of terrible ways and the world is spinning further and further out of control. And it's this wonderful sort of, I think there's a lot of that that really rings true, mm. and but it's it's deeply embedded in the the story of the crucifixion and in the revelation, you know, the the apocalypse at the end of uh, of the New Testament. And I I love that sort of religious analysis of what's going on in the world today. It's, I, I find it very interesting and persuasive. But it's just a wonderful story, and I've always liked the narratives of certain religious traditions and, and, and the way that those narratives get used, whether or not they're true, you know, whether or not they're sort of, they, they stack up as a sort of a scientific analysis of what's happening. And, and I think even Girard, you know, scaled down that, um, that whole story that I just told. I think in his later years, he decided he sort of backed away from it a bit. Hmm. But um, I still love it. You know, I, I, I just find religious takes on things really interesting. Oh, there's that gigantic cat of yours. He's so good. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad that that, Eli, the fat cat that you left that oh, yeah. part into in the philosopher's zone, the, where he the cat stays in the picture, where yeah. he where he uh, <laughs> makes an appearance and you mm-hmm. uh, make an uh, you know an, an exclamation of how big he is. Um, <laughs> do you think that human beings have a, for lack of a better term, God-shaped hole? Maybe not God-shaped hole. Maybe I would phrase it a religion-shaped hole. Where yeah. where religion meets specific human needs, and that if those needs aren't met, then there is a significant significant lack there, and and mm. maybe there's some dysfunction. Do you? Th- what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I really do. I really do think that's the case. And I was thinking about this in in you know in in preparation for this conversation and trying to come up of examples. And I, I was coming up a little short because I, I I do feel that we we create religion, and even when we sort of even when official religion sort of exits the picture, and we all organize ourselves into organize ourselves into secular democracies, we still keep creating still religious do structures. Yes, yeah. we do. And you know, people like Dawkins want to claim the nuns, the the people, the n o n e s, that the demo- mm-hmm. the fastest growing religious demographic in America in the United States of people who have no religious affiliation but the i mean but then you actually ask nuns well what do you believe and they're all into like ufo's and astrology and like all of these things that are just like new religions in utero Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have things like, I mean, the, the sort of rather hackneyed example, but I think it's a really spot on one, is market capitalism, which which mm. people sort of endlessly point out that capitalism has a, a priesthood and it has temples and it has a heaven for believers and it has a hell for unbelievers. And, you know, and it's especially apparent that unbelief constitutes a kind of a kind of heresy. You know, people get very upset when you start talking about doing away with capitalism. Um, and that just sort of in- indicates to me that that religious impulse is fundamental to to human nature, you know. And yeah. it's sort of interesting to see what's happened with with um, the Republican Party too, and 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 things on on the right, on the political right in the USA, where you have Christians who are 
manifestly shitty Christians, but boy, I mean, the, the, the channeling of the religious impulse into the cult of Trump um, and the cult of the GOP, I mean, it's just extraordinary and, and so clear that that's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a death cult now. Yeah. I mean, it's, I forget it, whether it was in the 60s or 50s, there is the Time magazine cover that said God is dead. And it kind of declared the the dawning of a new secular age and that religion was on the decline. Well, now here we are, you know, 60 years later or whatever. Seb, I can't do math right now. Um, and something like that. It's nowhere near gone. And so I, I feel like I have just kind of accepted that religion is here to stay. Of course, I am religious as well you know i consider myself deeply religious and part of the reason for that is i feel a very deep religious impulse and you know i wrote an article some time ago called the bound and the unbound where i try to explore kind of these two personality types that i keep running across and the unbound are people who really don't seem to understand the need for being bound to a religious tradition or bound to a religious identity. And for them, it actually feels like walking backwards. It, it's like walking backwards into oppression or, or into something self-limiting in a negative sense. And they just don't get it. They don't understand it. But then the, the bound are people like me. And of course, this is a spectrum. You know, this is a very tidy, mm. you know, <laughs> duality. But I think there's more spectrum here but then there's the bound like me who are people who feel really for lack of a better term empty and lost not without faith but without religion without mm. that scaffold and i don't know what that is and i don't know why that is but i'm definitely one of those people who has a religion shaped hole <laughs> in my mm -hmm. heart yeah and i don't yeah. know why yeah yeah i maybe have one too i i, I haven't sort of yeah, maybe I just don't know what it is because everything that you and I are saying sort of suggests that that everybody has this. You know, everybody has this impulse, and I certainly wouldn't say that I've done away with mine, but I've maybe sublimated it in, into something else that I don't quite recognize. I don't know if everyone has it. Mm, I mean, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of agnostic on that point, but I, what I do know is that I desperately have it. <laughs> like I <laughs> yeah, I yeah. massively have it. Um, yeah. And I know that a lot of other people do, but I'm open to the possibility that like human humans in general have this this religion shaped hole inside of us. Um, mm. So Satanism in particular, um, what got you interested in Satanism? To be clear to my audience, you are not a Satanist. You don't identify as a Satanist, but you, you have a, a big interest in it. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you find so interesting about Satanism? Because I'm always so fascinated by this. Uh, speaking of personality types, the personality type that looks at Satanism and doesn't go, oh my fucking God, what is this? And instead goes, wow, this is really interesting. And <laughs> so what did you find really interesting about it? Yeah, I, I, I think it, it goes back a long way. I mean, when I, when I really think about it, before I sort of understood what Satanism even was, I mean, I had a sort of a cartoonish idea when I was younger of, 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 of Satan and, and the whole sort of concept. You know, I always really liked horror. I liked satanic imagery. Um, I I've always been really into music. I was really into Black Sabbath when I was a kid, and, mm -hmm. and I sort of understood that black, uh, what Black Sabbath was all about, and I thought it was really cool, you know. Um, 
you know, anything edgy or creepy, I was kind of into it as a as a maybe a, a young teenager. You know, that's very common, I think, among young straight white suburban boys who have no direct experience <laughs> of death or trauma or, or genuine fear. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm really into exploring the dark side, but no <laughs> idea about what the actual dark side really yes. is. You know, I think if I'd really sort of seen the dark side, I would have run a mile. But, um, that, you know, that, that was what, for better or worse, that's what I was like. Um, the Exorcist, you know, hugely sort of infam- influential moment um, seeing that film. But especially, like, I like talking about The Exorcist, you know, not so much the second half of the film where all the vomit and stuff starts flying. I mean, mm-hmm. that's fun. But the first half of the movie where you don't, there's just this sense that something really terrible is building up and it's this atmosphere of sort of dread and grim despair. You know, Karis has that dream of his mother going down into the subway and I'm actually getting chills now while I, right now, while I while I uh, talk about it. I, I have always just aesthetically loved that feeling. I find it very sort of pleasing. It's brilliant. And I found it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. It's and, a masterpiece. And, and, you, you might sort of, you know, you might sort of, again, I mean, I, I think it's it's a sort of the association of that with Satanism is is kind of, aesthetic first and foremost but i've always found that very important i, I think is i think aesthetics are a perfectly valid reason to be interested in in a religion mm-hmm. i think yeah. aesthetics are absolutely that is absolutely a reasonable and appropriate way to be attracted to religion right 100 yeah, percent. Yeah. yeah and i certainly found it through music as my parents had always dreaded would happen um, <laughs> I got into in, in the eighties. There was a, a group of artists based in the UK who were a part of a community who were all very interested in esotericism, and they were they were reading Crowley and Austin Osman Spare, and you know mm-hmm. none of these people were necessarily Satanists, but they're proto Satanists, though. It's proto Satanists movement yeah. that that Satanism emerged from. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and a lot of the music that came out of that scene. It was sort of based on on drones and and mm-hmm. surrealist collage. It had a very grey sort of forbidding aspect, and I, I I just loved that atmosphere. And I also came to recognise that the people involved in that movement were very sort of that they embodied and espoused what I later came to think of as as sort of classic satanic virtues. It was sort of this freewheeling curiosity and artistic integrity and an aesthetic that had a sort of moral ambiguity to it, you know, sort of collapsed that distinction between good and evil and beauty and ugliness and nice and nasty. So I think I was really sort of primed um, by all of that. But a few years ago, I made a, before I was on the Philosopher's Zone, I was making um, radio documentaries, radio features, and I did one on Satanism. And this was before uh, Satanic Temple had, had emerged. So everybody I spoke to were Church of Satan, um, and I interviewed Peter Gilmore. Oh, yeah. Um, I interviewed a couple of Sydney-based Satanists. And they were all just really, really interesting people. I really liked them. I felt very drawn to them personally. Uh, Peter Gilmore just has this, you know, this this magnetism. He's just such a lovely guy. Um, even he, well, I, I felt he was a lovely guy, even while I found his sort of social Darwinism um, troubling. And, yep. Everybody I spoke to for that program had a slightly supercilious attitude towards the common herd, you know, the sort of the, the mainstream where way above all any of this. <laughs> yes. Um, and, I, you know, I, I sort of responded to that with, with slight, um, with, with, with a measure of skepticism. 
Mm-hmm. But um, I just, yeah, that was a that was a very that was a really good experience making that program and talking to those people and reading. You know, I'd read a lot of the Satanic Bible and um, uh, Gilmore's book, the Satanic Scriptures, as for preparation for that program, and it just really left me with a sense that this is a religion that is worth taking seriously first and foremost. It's not just um, you know devil worshipping freaks, but. There's uh, there's an ethics there that I think is uh, you know I think a lot more people should should look seriously into it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> we and need more Satanists. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely I agree. There's also, I mean, I couldn't help but connect what you were saying to your uh, discussion of Derrida, as mm. well of kind of the collapsing of good and evil, of light and dark within Satanism, and how that's very postmodern. I mean, that mm. that's there's something there are Satanism is about questioning narratives. It is about being skeptical of longly held narratives. At least that's one of the themes that is prevalent in my own Satanism. And so it makes sense, given everything that you've said, that that Satanism would be interesting to you because Satanism is Satanism is very much, in my view, about not taking things for granted and kind of, you know, exploding constructs and and sorting through the rubble and seeing what interesting things are there. Um, In the last 10 minutes, speaking of postmodernism, and this is where everyone who's really bored of this topic can turn it off. Um, (laughs) So so thank you, everyone, for listening for the rest of you. (laughs) Um, Just because I do think it's valuable to offer a counterweight to um, to some of the episodes that I've done. What is your main critique? Uh, So, okay, so we're we're leaving the realm of Satanism and religion. We're going back to postmodernism. But I am really, really curious to get your perspective on this. What is your main criticism of people like Helen Pluck Rose who are just very, very, very critical of postmodernism. And I have my thoughts on that, but mm. I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I mean, my first, maybe this isn't, isn't what you're angling for, but my first criticism of, of someone like Helen Pluckrose is that I don't think that she is talking about something real. You know, I, I think that her... Her what she constructs and 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 sticks this label of postmodernism on is a very shaky, shadowy sort of construct. I don't think it really exists in the way that she clearly believes that it does. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a little suspicious, and, and this is you know we won't we don't need to talk about Helen Pluckrose specifically, but, but, but those that I mean that general. That that general collection of people: Douglas Murray, mm. Jordan Peterson, uh-huh. Helen oh, yeah. Pluckrose, on and on and on. The, that list goes on of people who are very skeptical of of postmodernism and kind of see it as a root of everything that's going wrong in the world right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. can yeah, yeah addressing yeah. that crowd. Uh, yeah, <laughs> them. Yeah. Well, they all do that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> they all do that thing of. First of all, I mean, I, I find postmodernism just a hugely problematic category, just as a sort of a genre label. If if you start digging into what is postmodernism, it, it all just sort of slips through your fingers because the writers and the thinkers that get lumped in as postmodernists so different from each other. I mean, people like to sort of talk about Derrida and Foucault, um, maybe Lacan, 
uh, uh, you know, the, the sort of the arch postmodernist, as all as though they were all part of this sort of one unified project, which really which isn't they the case. were. I mean, they, they, they huge differences in their in their work. The, the same is true when people talk about the Enlightenment, as if the Enlightenment mm, was was some. Yeah. You know, as if, you know, every Enlightenment philosopher were all on Zoom every Tuesday night, like figuring mm-hmm. out their, their you know, unified positions. But no, it was this, you know, long period with lots of different thinkers, many of whom hated each other, many of whom disagreed. And yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a complex movement. Yeah, yeah. But I, 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 to say nothing of the supposed um, atheism of the Enlightenment, that's another one that I uh, that I that I really take issue with. But the, mm-hmm. the the other thing is that that a lot of I mean, okay, so so what are these people talking about when they bang on about postmodernism? It, it's usually a sort of a breakdown of master narratives. We don't believe anything anymore. You know, we're all becoming relativists. There's no, we've lost any sort of sense of what's right and wrong and good and evil and and so on and so forth. Um, and now I'm caricaturing their position a little bit, but I think that's, you know, that, that's the sort of the, the general tenor of it. Um, first of all, I would say, when ever has that not been the case? I mean, when was there a time when we had these sort of dominant narratives that just never came under any challenge at all? I, I think we're very good at writing histories of our culture in which those challenges are, are sort of airbrushed out. But the other thing that bothers me is I, I think beneath that concern that that fretting about the, the the collapse of master narratives lies a uh, a more genuine concern about western culture and uh you know the, the west is losing its um its supremacy you know when we talk about master narratives and, and especially when when people like peterson and helen pluckrose and all the anti-postmodernists talk about master narratives they're talking about enlightenment rationalism really i mean they're, they're talking about the, the the european enlightenment which was you know, a, a couple of centuries of genocide and plunder, and so, I, and I'm not saying that the fruits of the Enlightenment haven't been great for the West. I mean, they really have. And you know, I, I love being a, a sort of a uh, a rationalist white male inheritor of of all the Enlightenment has to offer. You know, all that stuff was was designed for me. You know, so obviously, I'm I'm sort of <laughs> as as ambivalent as I feel about it. I've done very well out of all that, but this this sense that it is a uh, that, that it, it was just it was just all good it was all beneficial and uh, and that that anybody who wants to um, question the foundations of enlightenment rationalism and especially question the historical foundations of it look into what was really going on is somehow trying to destroy the west and and and, and sort of take down you know destroy culture itself um, i find that a unconvincing, but B very suspect. You know, I think there's a certain kind of um, Western cultural supremacy at work there. The problem that I have with the way some people talk about this stuff is, it's like it, to me, it's like saying psychology is going to spell the demise of Western civilization. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Like, it's a word. It is a huge field with many different schools and traditions and methods. So what exactly are we talking about? And so to me saying postmodernism is going, postmodernism is, is this, is going to, you know, result in the demise of civilization, or it is 100% wonderful and all good, 
well, what are we taught? Or same with the Enlightenment, you know, the Enlightenment, you know, some people write like Enlightenment fan fiction and it's, you know, basically this total valorization. And then there are other people who, who cast it in the exact opposite light. And I'm just like, the, the problem I have with that is that I don't know what they're talking about. In the same way, I wouldn't know what someone is talking about if they were to say all, you know, psychology as a field, as a movement, mm-hmm. as a, is, is good or bad. Well, some of it is atrocious. So there's, there, there's some really horrific and ugly stuff in psychology that has done untold harm. And then there's some that's true. There's some mm, that's yeah. accurate. And so that's one problem I have with it where it's like there's each quote unquote movement or field or what have you. It will be a con- it will be complex and we can learn from it and we can sift through it and we can take it seriously and and kind of, you know, learn and 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 take it in context and and so on and and move on. Mm. And so I yeah. don't I, I just don't think that it's useful <laughs> to do this totalizing thing. But then the other the other issue I have with Helen Pluckrose, and I've thought a lot about this, is I think and by the way, Helen, if you're listening, like please, I would love to hear from you if this is accurate or not. But I think that what a lot of people do is they try to find philosophical roots for present bad behavior. And I think that's often because, you know, when you read cynical theories, what is it trying ultimately, what is it trying to explain? It's trying to explain the bad behavior of some leftists. And believe me, I have been in some unspeakably toxic leftist environments. And there a lot of people are, you know, (laughs) you know, in online spaces in some online spaces just feel like they're in a death cult in, in certain spaces. I, th- I just think that there are way more mundane explanations for why that is, <laughs> right? And, yeah. I, and I don't think we need to trace it back to Foucault. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think that we need to trace bad behavior all the way back to Foucault. I think that, and, and I think it, it's, it's imbuing harm into ideologies, imbuing harm into Judith Butler and Foucault, where maybe where there's probably a far more banal explanation for why human beings do gross things to each other and it's Mm, because mm -hmm. we're human right and i'm not sure foucault has much to do with it (laughs) and i think that digital media has actually has a lot to do with it where you know the the technology of the algorithms that encourages bad behavior and um and yeah it's a problem you know misbehavior online is a problem. People treating each other like shit online is a problem that exists on both the right and the left. I mean, it's mm. the the right is just as guilty and if not more so, you know, they are way more of an existential threat to the world than the left is in my opinion. Yeah. Um yeah. and so I just I see I think that that taking a just looking at human nature and the way human nature interfaces with with the digital world is a just way more productive way to explain dysfunction than tracing it back to Michel Foucault. (laughs) Right. Does that make sense? Because I know just as many leftists, you know, I know, I know so many, first of all, Judith Butler wasn't out there fucking canceling people on Twitter. Like (laughs) this. And I know so many leftists and so many academics and so many, 
people who would fall into the postmodern camp, you know, you know, more, you know, who are very high, you know, really informed by Michel Foucault and so on, who who are absolutely opposed to treating each other poorly. Mm-hmm. And they but they approach it from a from a but that's because they're mature human beings, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so yeah, I yeah. I just see it as it's like is it worth criticizing the left? Absolutely. There's there's stuff to criticize in every movement. Is so is it worth criticizing, you know, you know, something that Michel Foucault wrote in the history of sexuality? Absolutely. Knock yourself out. I just think that it's not necessarily helpful to find the deep philosophical roots of current misbehavior. So I don't I don't mean to keep ranting, but that's my what what yeah. do you take what do you think of that? Do you of, I, of that? Yeah, a, I, I, <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree with every word. I I, I do. I, I do think you're spot on and I mean the the ideology the, the ideology is a is a huge part of it I think because yeah, you know, I'm sure Helen Pluckrose is a lovely person, but cynical theory is is such an ideological text. I mean, and, and you know, someone like Jordan Peterson, just so ideological, just has this sort of totalizing worldview, um, which it then sort of needs to defend. But ideologues need other ideologues, you know, to 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 sort of. Uh, to, to attack or defend themselves from. And so they create another ideology, which is postmodernism, you know, with, with a capital P. And so you have this sort of one totalizing worldview, which doesn't recognize itself as such. You know, these Jordan Peterson thinks he's just a, thinks he's just a, a sensible guy with some, with, with, you know, common, common sense ideas about the world, you know. Um, but these are, these are ideologues who look at what they don't like and, Turn that into an ideology as well, um, and and of course these are all academics fighting with our, with other academics. I think that that's another huge part of the problem. My favorite is when they turn it into an existential threat to humanity as well. Yeah. That's yeah, that's yeah, the best yeah. part, yeah. and like if I think that it's really valid to to critique each other. That's important. We should do mm-hmm. that, and and I mean that's how progress is made, and is through helpful earnest and generous critique um and through conversation it's when the Gen- generous being the the operative the key word, word. yeah exactly the, the the bad faith is just is the, just stifling. yeah yeah exactly and and it's when it gets out when the stakes rise to this is threatening human civilization i'm like uh okay let we can we can we can critique each other without without raising the stakes to that level and and when we raise the stakes to that point to that level the way jordan peterson does that this you know postmodernism is a threat to to western civilization well okay well if you're going to raise the stakes to the level of a fucking civil war then no no earnest and generous conversation is possible and progress isn't possible anyway Mm, yeah and, and if you just, just to yeah just, yeah just to sort of add to that a little, I think that if you scratch beneath the surface of that existential threat, and you ask you know who are these, you know where exactly is the existential threat coming from? I think a lot of the time the answer is women, right? 
feminist women who, who, who no longer necessarily want to devote themselves to being wives and mothers. Muslims, um, trans, trans people, you know, th- these, these just over and over again are the enemy sort of just beneath the ideology. I, I think these are the people that are getting, that, 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 that they're really worried about. Um, and I just find that really deeply concerning. This is making me, this is reminding me of a conversation I had a year or two ago with, um, well, I won't get into that right now, Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a rabbit <laughs> hole that we won't go down now. Um, well, we, I, we should probably wrap this up. This is a great yeah. note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me. This has been a lot of fun. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Absolutely. Thank you for, for enduring through my uh, sick delirium. Um, <laughs> Uh, for people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Uh, they can find The Philosopher's Zone uh, via the ABC Listen app um, or the uh, ABC Radio National website, and they can find me on Twitter at David P. Zone. The Philosophers. philosophers. The philosopher. Yeah, I, I have trouble with it too. I have to say it every week, and it yes. fucks me up every time. Philosopher's Zone. The yeah. Philosopher's Zone is also on... Um, Apple Podcasts, by the way, as well. Indeed, you can say, you can say that. I can't. <laughs> oh, really? Are you contractually <laughs> obligated not to say uh, that? Uh, contractually obligated to push the ABC Listen app. It is a very good, very very good app. You can get all the other ABC and RN content there. It's great. Amazing. But yes, just just quietly, we are uh, we are on podcast. <laughs> go listen well. on a- go listen <laughs> on the ABC app then. All yeah, right, that's the one. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D Seven. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on. Spotify, Apple Music, and this show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. It is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Thanks.